and welcome back to Bucks Popcast, the weekly pseudo accurate roundtable pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts Monica and Wayne and Hannah. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. Hey. Hey. Oh, good. I have no snappy patter because we used it up in yesterday's recording, which I'm still not sure if that was last week's show or next week's show. So I was like, oh, Wayne, welcome back. You haven't been here in a while, except that like you were here yesterday, which might have been last week or it might be <laughs> next week. And sadly, on last week's show or next week's show, we had this exact conversation, except for Monica and Hannah weren't here. So people are oh. going to think it's a rerun. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, I will chime in and say, Wayne, congratulations on taking the lead in the box office game, but wow. I'm coming for you in March. Period. Yeah, I was feb- February heavy in terms of choices. <laughs> Not my plan, because that would imply a plan. I will say, just because I don't know that we're going to get a whole episode out of it. We haven't done we haven't done a Marvel heavy episode in a while, but I did see Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania today. The Internet would have you believe that this is a bad movie. It's not. It's a fine movie. I enjoyed it. It was I mean, is it an amazing movie? No, but it is a lovely movie that I think that if you enjoy Marvel movies, you'll enjoy this. I enjoyed it far better than I enjoyed the last Thor movie or the last Doctor Strange movie. Now, granted, I, mean, how, I hated I, the last Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, I was going to say. But a lot of people hated the last Thor movie. And I like this better than I like Thor movie. I think Me, I yeah, it. that's pretty high praise because, yeah, you I'm, know, I love Thor Love and Thunder and you this in comparison I liked to it. Black Widow, which Honestly, mm-hmm. I think it's like one of the yeah. better Marvel movies yeah. for you to be giving a yeah, movie that everyone fine. else seems to be panning. And they're not panning. If you go look at the ratings, it's pretty much a bunch of people going, meh, it's not like a lot of people going, oh, this wasn't terribly exciting. It was just kind of big. And, and people are saying, oh, there's too much Marvel. And I'm like, no, they're doing the comic books. It it felt like a comic well, booky story. It was fine. I, I was happy. It was like I enjoyed my two hours there. It's two hours, two hours, <laughs> like five, ten more minutes would have been too much. I was amused. I laughed at things. There were cool fights. I like there, there were, you know, there were some holes, but like I enjoyed myself. I mean, maybe this is its own episode where we talk about like, is there too much Marvel? Because that's what the Internet is doing. Yeah, and there, I don't know. I mean, yes, there is too much Marvel. Stop watching all of it. You don't need to watch everything. I don't read every comic book. Wayne worked in a store and didn't read every comic didn't book. Didn't read every comic. <laughs> I worked in a store and didn't read it. Like, you get a job in the comic book store, you are really devoted to it. You're like, okay, I'm going to be very good at my job. And you try to read every comic just that, so you can talk to everybody who comes in. And that lasts three to six months tops. And then you're just like, fuck this. Like, no, I don't. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> you know, this is kind of related to what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. In that oh. there's a lot of stuff. Oh, wonderful. What's our topic? Uh-huh. <laughs> for unintentional segues. Transition. <laughs> yeah. So the, I didn't mean to, but I, I was like, yeah, there is a lot of stuff. Anyway, so today we're talking about lost media and disappearing media. Because like there's lost media, which is like sort of the catch all term that at least wikipedia uses to talk about media that for one reason or another is like lost to like the general public like you can't get a hold of it like it was a fire that destroyed the archives at warner brothers or whatever yeah or mm-hmm. like and I, I saw i also am using disappearing because there's things that, that technically you could get somewhere 
But like sometimes the rights get yanked from a ser- streaming service and it goes somewhere else that you no longer have access to. Or you bought a book from Amazon and Amazon gets mad for whatever reason and takes it away from you, even though you bought it. So they're not the same, but I think they're related. And like this is, you know, like something that's not like I, I used Batgirl as an example when I wrote the blog because Warner Brothers and Discovery merged last year. and. A casualty, but not the only casualty of that merger, was the high-profile film that was supposed to go to HBO Max, Batgirl, and they decided to take a tax write-off. And, you know, even, like, wildly successful films like Dirty Dancing almost were lost media because one of the producers of Dirty Dancing, when they saw the film, Aaron Russo, apparently said, burn the negative and collect the insurance. So like same sort of like strategy. That movie's brilliant. One of my favorite films. Yes, it is. Like if we're going to do like the occasional episode on like things, we should talk about Dirty Dancing because that movie gets more relevant every year. I love it so much. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. I would love to throw a fun fact in, which is that I was in the wardrobe department for the remake. The remake of the 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 remake television remake starring oh. Abigail Breslin. Okay, so yes, because there's also Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights, which is oh. I've seen as well, but you're talking about the Abigail Breslin version. Okay, I, ha- I mean, no offense, did not enjoy it, but oh. I'm glad you had work. I didn't really enjoy working on it either. So, ooh, ooh. You know. <laughs> didn't know that. <laughs> How much NDA are you willing to violate for our little silly show? Don't do Dab, that. I'm so <laughs> retired that like... Fair enough. <laughs> but anyway so hannah continue sorry yeah so like there's a lot of stuff in the world and i was originally gonna say think about the library of alexandria but actually i looked it up and turns out like the library of alexandria fun fact wasn't destroyed by the fire by julius caesar like it was a warehouse that burnt some things and actually the library slowly deteriorated over time because of more parallel things actually to like our lives now like lack of funding apparently but like you know like maria anna mozart king mozart's sister like she apparently was a composer herself and like she was featured on mozart in the jungle which was bringing attention to you know, composers but, like, none of her compositions survived even though they have been referenced in historical documents or like shakespeare has a lost play so like this is a new phenomenon that like warner brothers invented so yeah lost media what are its implications why should we <laughs> care what disappears like mm-hmm. Is there a difference between what happened back in the day, ever how far back you want to talk about it, and what's happening Tuesday. now? Last Tuesday. You, back yeah. In the day. <laughs> yeah. Is it is like the Warner Brothers thing unique? Is it not? What's the point of archival preservation? And how do you decide what to preserve? And like what are the politics behind lost media? Anyway, I open the floor. Mm-hmm. I'm for preserving all media. I mean, uh, can we talk <laughs> about the realities of that though? So, as much as that sounds nice, we also mm-hmm. need to just think about actual space constraints, yes. which is something that I feel like, especially when we talk about digital media or mm-hmm. things that we encounter via the internet, we don't necessarily think we kind of understand the idea of like a cloud or server space for the most part we are not thinking a ton about the actual physical storage hardware. the way that mm-hmm. you do with like 
boxes of old letters, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we can comprehend the idea of you can only shove so many things in your closet at home before mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I should take some of that to Goodwill, right? No, then, keep it all forever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, might, yeah. I might have a hoarding problem. <laughs> yeah, like there, there is a physical limit to digital media and born digital media the same way mm-hmm. that there is a physical limit to physical ephemera and facts and objects. And mm-hmm. keep inventing more space. No, one of the things that I am trained in is archives and collections management which is very specifically how do we make these ethical decisions about what we choose to keep and not keep and how do we think about storage and space knowing that a lot of these institutions just don't have the budget for us to then Mm -hmm. go buy another storage unit to put shit in right or we don't have enough people where we have storage units but nobody to go through them no one's gone through them then no one is allowed to know that material is there or rent it. So then what good is having all of your storage units in the first place, right? So so as much as we want to be like, we should keep all of it, that sounds great. Can't, right? Like the realities are that the world just does not have enough. We've got several other planets that I'm okay storing things on. We're not doing anything with Mars. <laughs> Mav, how are you going to get to it? Isn't the whole point of storing the access of those materials? I'm not sure. Um, so, yes, yes, I, I get your point. And obviously I'm being silly partly, right? I look at it as, you know, from a scholarly point of view, there's just things that for in my case, it's easy because I I'm into pop culture. So a lot of stuff that I want, I can find eventually. But sometimes you can't, you know, even in the digital age, right? Like just to mentioned something I've talked about on the show before song of the South song of the South is that's not a archival storage problem. It's a Disney doesn't want you to know that they made this movie. So that Disney actively keeps this from you and whatever your feelings on the storyline of of song of the South, I would argue it has culturally significant value and therefore needs to be available to, if not the general, then at least for like people who are going to be 20th century scholars need it. And so I have a copy and I've watched it. I watched it for this show. If you go back and onto the episode where we were talking about it. So I think that matters, but also I think that there's things that like, maybe I don't care about, but I really do think that there's value in, you know, archeologically, (laughs) you know, 500 years from now, I want someone to be able to discover you know, the lost works of little known poet Kanye West <laughs> or whatever, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's weird, but I want people to be able to figure those things out. And that is the ethical dilemma that archivists run into, right? Is this idea of you need to collect both mainstream discourse and things that are less popular, less circulated, more directly associated with marginalized identities that wouldn't have necessarily hit the cultural zeitgeist because mm-hmm. that's part of how we understand that these people like did live lives that didn't fit within mainstream discourse. And that mm-hmm. all of those things are the ethical dilemma of the archivist to figure out what to keep and not keep because it's important to know both a what was like the hegemonic discourse of the era right to know what are mm-hmm. people primarily thinking 
also how are people then negotiating what is the political or cultural majority and navigating that within smaller, more private spaces. And that is why we run into all of these space concerns, because you have so many different groups and so many different identities in which how can you possibly save all of them? And the fact that it is important, you're right, to save things that are racist, to be able to talk about racism. That's why Mm -hmm. there is a very large collection of racist ephemera at Ferris State in Michigan. It's the largest Mm -hmm. collection in the country, and it exists specifically for the purpose of talking about how prolific and incredibly harmful all of that Mm -hmm. material was to then perpetuating racist discourse. Because we don't want to look at an entire archive of those things. That's right. kind of the point. The point is that archive needs to be big to drive right. that point home about how incredibly pervasive it was. The more I think the more obvious thing is to point at is like the uh, the Civil War statues, like the Confederate statues, which are just, you know, fucking massive. And we want to take them out of all the town squares. But where do we put them? Because we don't want to just melt them down. So it's that. Do it. But melt it down. We don't need to keep fucking everything. Like, I just. (laughs) (laughs) Throw them in the river. Pull them down. I mean, like, you know, like in the area. And by by in the area, I mean, in the North Carolina Research Triangle. Mm -hmm. In the past 10 years, I guess like that is a wider number than it needs to be. But I forget COVID times. So I'm just giving myself some buffer space. There have been multiple statues pulled down, including Silent Sam, which made national news because UNC Chapel Hill. We talked, like, we well, not me, on. but Docs Popcast did an episode on, for sure. Mm-hmm. Episode number 22, which would have been before Hannah. Oh, yes. it's really back in the archives, Mav. Now, <laughs> yes. isn't it? I'm glad that's been preserved. That's all I can <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's silly, but like, I I do think that there is, I think there's weird value in, for exactly the reason Monica was saying, like, there's a difference between the archival, you know, everybody deciding right now what is popular and therefore we save it. And because of poor decisions, it's why it's easy to pretend that there were no women or black people or Asian people or gay people who ever wrote a thing before like 1950 (laughs) because we literally just actively destroyed things that were you know not written by literally 12 white guys just like Mm -hmm. as a footnote of more specificity Mm -hmm. there there are things that survived like the woman of color written in 1808 by an anonymous Mm -hmm. writer who scholars think likely was a woman of color. And then, you know, like Jane Austen's more popular now than she ever was. And it's interesting if you look at scholarship of like the 18th and 19th centuries, how that changes over time of like how it's like a lot of white dudes invented the novel. And then like Mm -hmm. other people are quote unquote discovered as like also sometimes like like you know people like decide oh yeah jane austen can like be involved in this and like we can talk about fanny bernie now or like the woman of color sorry mav didn't mean to no no it's make just your point early no but i mean that was like, that's a better way of making it because my point with jane austen like jane austen among other things is notable because her most notable thing for many years it was and also there's this woman you know as opposed to hey there were probably three if not four 
if not a thousand women writers <laughs> at the same yeah. time that Jane Austen was around. And we just don't know their names because no one bothered to save, you know, any of them. And then every once in a while, somebody discovers a book in a basement somewhere. And we're like, hey, there's this new person. Women were hugely prolific in writing mm -hmm. in the 18th and 19th centuries. We, well, well, some of them oh, we do, but I mean, like, culture, yeah. like the and scholarship expand, but like, even like in the introduction to the Broadview, the woman of color edition, it talks about like how we write about books has changed too, because the introduction points out like there are a lot of women of color in 18th century English works, but scholarship doesn't focus on them for a really long time. So it's also like to how we tell stories. Like, you know, there, there's like new archival work talking about little women and Louise May Alcott and, you know, gender fluidity instead of just, you know, reading Joe March as like heterosexual in a happy heterosexual marriage. Like the new little women adaptation plays <laughs> Joe's relationship too in an interesting way, I think. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there are people who were definitely queer at the time and writing super queer novels and scholarship was like, you can't, we can't confirm that this person was queer even though you know i mean i want to pick up and this is me getting incredibly scholarly because you know <laughs> i'm in a phd That's program now and <laughs> i have Yay. to read a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> and i feel like they hilariously i haven't really done a lot of episodes in which i'm like i read about this in class but this is a point where i actually want to bring in Claudia hartman's venus and 2x which is something that we did read in class. And mm -hmm. Venus and Tuax is about the fact that a lot of times the only records that we have, especially for marginalized people, are death records. Specifically, mm -hmm. she's talking about slave ships and women who died on the passage. And this idea of there being within archivist and researcher discussions, these ideas of like speculative histories, because we cannot know for sure but we can make educated guesses as historians based on the other conditions all of the other things that we know about history and be able to hear stories of things that we don't know and the entire sort of argument of Hartman is that there is a sense in which that is re-traumatizing on these bodies because then we are saying that these women have to be useful to us in some way. We have to be able to make sense of them as we have to be able to narrativize them to feel like they are part of history, which isn't necessarily mm -hmm. the case when we think about how many people don't actually make it into the archives or into record, which I think is an interesting point when we talk about ideas of disappearing media in terms of who gets to be counted or not counted within the archive is the archive the only place that it matters is weird i mean so yeah uh, uh, and what i mean is i'll take the i'll take the recent one right i don't know if the batgirl movie is good or not people who made it say it's excellent the people who canceled it are saying oh god one of them oh well no we've done this to save you from yourselves it was not good it was unreleasable we can't do this which by the way is the same thing they said about the snyder cut and you know fine they got reversed and it was a thing. So like I so like I'm always hesitant with anybody who, you know, corporately says, no, we've saved you from ourselves and it just so happened to make us money. So whatever. But like the value of Batgirl as a thing 
to me is that it was, you know, the movie about the Latina superhero. <laughs> she was female. She was a woman of color. She was a woman of Chicano descent. And, and the other alternatives are none of them. There are none. It was the one, right? So, so representation wise, it mattered. But also there's, uh, I think a lot more of what mattered is the discussion about her. And we're having that anyway. I still wish I could see it, but I don't think it's just, hey, life gets better if we get to watch this one random movie on HBO Max that we're, that like, who ultimately really cares. So I think that part of what we're getting at is we want the discussion. And I don't think, I don't think Batgirl in particular is going to be lost to the annals of at least not modern history. You know, like when we're going to be discussing this as a thing for quite a while, just because of the controversy around it in an odd way that we're not really discussing, I don't know, Scoob 2, whatever it was called. <laughs> you know. So is there value in that is what I'm asking? Or does it, or do we need to have the copy that we can watch of Batgirl fighting Brendan Fraser? I mean, we just, we don't need to have we don't need to watch it to be able to have the conversation if that's the point mm -hmm. that I feel right. like you're getting at is so I recently learned of a project by a, a grad student at UCLA who is looking at old silent films that didn't survive for whatever reason mm -hmm. in terms of um, you know there were only so many copies of the physical reels <laughs> and instead what they chose to do is go through old newspapers and look mm. for plot descriptions or mm. old posters or something mm -hmm. that that allows you to then still have an idea about what these actual films were about without ever having to actually see them itself and i do think mav that that you're right that it's important it's, it's maybe unfairly prioritizing the visual as like the mm -hmm. only mode of archive which is something that we really come into within field of performance studies things like embodied knowledge in terms of how do you pass down something? It's not a photograph if it's not a video, right? Mm -hmm. Something like like embodied can be a great example might be like a dance that you mm -hmm. learned from family members that is sort of something that is performed traditionally at holidays with your family. And the fact that, that that can exist as memory and archive and be equally important when it comes to our ability to have discussions about Things like identity and representation, which I feel like is what you're getting at, Mav, is like, we don't need to see the movie to be able to say, isn't it fucked that like we lost the one movie that actually That's, had a legitimate yes, superhero? Yeah. That's one of the thoughts I have on this whole topic, disappearing media. I mean, thank you. We have sculptures, we have paintings, we have that sort of thing. But up until the advent of recorded media, any performance was lost right. media. You know, it was in the moment. We have no recordings of anything prior to of Shakespearean plays. Right. Yeah, 18, whatever. It was just mm -hmm. they, those things are meant to be in the moment. They are very temporal. It's, you know, so we never even thought about preserving that stuff until mm -hmm. the technology allowed us to do that. Um, so, and I find that interesting. There, there's also, you know, the, what we're talking about flies in the face of there's that famous Patton Oswalt thing from 10 years ago or so. The everything available all the time idea just if you want it it's on the internet you can find it well that's not completely true no no uh, you know, and i mean it's a neat idea i get the point he was making just that it's mm -hmm. so much easier to find stuff if you're 
60 years old and suddenly discover this cool new band called Led Zeppelin. You can listen to all of them. If they're called Led Zeppelin, good luck yeah. if they're called De La Soul. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just because they're in the, you know, Trugoy the Dove died last week mm -hmm. and De La Soul's music is not streaming. It actually will yeah. be soon because they've been in a fight over streaming rights literally for the last decade. Well, and um, that's been, and that's been going I've on got all of it. Artists. Right. Yeah. Right. I've got yeah. all of their music because I love them, but yeah, I good luck finding it's available them. now. But anything Neil Young owned the rights to wasn't streaming right. anywhere for a long time. It maybe now I don't know that kind of thing. There's this stuff we just assume we can jump on the internet and listen to it. And yeah, if you dig far enough, somebody has recorded, you made digital copies of all the Neil Young stuff, and it's uploaded in somebody's Dropbox, somebody <laughs> can access, or you know, a with dark a, web. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you can find this stuff if you're dedicated and dig long enough. But it's not easily accessible. But there are so many TV shows like that and you know, stuff that just our cultural knowledge of this has gotten. But Wayne, you're also really bringing up like um, I'm thinking of something like the Disney Plus recording of like Hamilton. Like when we talk about like mm -hmm. live performance, I'm like, yeah. well, you haven't like you've seen a version of Hamilton, but you right, haven't right. Like, you haven't like really seen Hamilton because like yeah. there is that individual like live yep. experience. Oh, it just absolutely. absolutely cannot be replicated. Or if I think about something like yeah. jazz music wait, wait, wait. That, that relies so much on improvisation or the idea of every performance that is a live performance by an actor, like is something that's coming with improvisation and is coming with nuance mm -hmm. and is coming with specificity. It mm -hmm. absolutely cannot be preserved and that's sort of the magic yeah. of it right is yeah, that you the, know that you are I don't know. experiencing it yeah, well no i no i completely agree with that mm -hmm. there's moment experience of something and you going back to the music thing live albums i'm going to use kiss as an example they mm -hmm. put out three albums nobody cared they put out a live and kiss alive and the live version of rock and roll and i came a hit and it launched them into the stratosphere and it became their most successful <laughs> album and what they said at the time is those th first three albums were fine. But this was about the live experience, you know, and the album captured that for the first time. It gave did it though? Well, that's the point I'm making is because now we know that after that was recorded in live venues, it went into the studio, was double tracked and enhanced and whatever, <laughs> and it barely resembles what is actually a live recording of their concert. So, so it was mediated by technology to so, more closely resemble the live experience. I have a minor pushback here, and this is this goes with a, a lot of musicians, including Prince, my all time favorite musician was like this way. I don't want, you know, I've got to have special recordings or special sessions that are only ephemeral because the art is being here in the moment and a recording could never capture it, which is, you know, what Monica was saying, which I agree that there is there's a difference to. I'm trying to think. Okay, I'll use P Funk because P Funk is a band that I've seen live in person six or seven times, mm -hmm. and 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 I've got I don't know about all their albums. I've got many. I've got many P Funk albums, but I've seen mm -hmm. and so I've seen Atomic Dog performed live like seven times. Plus, yeah. I've got a couple different recordings, and each one's different. And I agree that there is value to that. But if you haven't seen P Funk live in concert seven times. You're not going to get to because George is retiring. And so like, like that's it's, just an experience yeah. of mine. Like you, like you can't go like Hamilton. I cannot, I never saw Hamilton. With, I've never seen Hamilton live and I can't see it with the original cast. They're just not going to yeah. do it again for me. So I do think that there's value in no, that I, Disney I, plus recording. Cause that's where I, I'm not saying yeah. that there's no value to that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have lots of bootleg recordings and live albums and right. 
you know, I enjoy that stuff, but it is a different experience than just the purely live experience. Sure. But you know, I to Mav's point, or maybe tangential to Mav's point, and actually something I've been thinking about as we start talking about archives is that part of the definition that Wikipedia like gave about lost media, because you know, Wikipedia is a great scholarly source. Yes, the be all use all question. I'm being very sarcastic. I just want everyone to know that <laughs> in case you can't read it in my tone. But like one thing that like lost media emphasize is like it doesn't have to be like totally destroyed, like burned in a fire. It's just missing or unavailable to the general public. Mm-hmm. So like there are things that exist, like this is weird that I know this, but actually probably not given my interests. In the Rubenstein Library at Duke University, there is an 1836-ish board game, not full game, but board game, called The Heiress and Her Suitors, adapted for the play of eight persons or a less number wherein much amusement and speculation is produced. And the description is, and I just want to read this because it's fun, not because it helps make my point. It, it was published, The Heiress and Her Suitors, A New Game, just published in colors and fit up in a box. A new round game entitled The Heiress and Her Suitors, adapted play of eight persons or a less number wherein much amusement and speculation is produced. It consists of an heiress and eight admirers, a peer, a dandy, a squire, a soldier, a sailor, a lawyer, a parson, and a doctor, to each of whom is assigned a separate road to the object of their ambition. Sounds like a great time for me to play. Unfortunately, the board of the board game is like the only thing that Duke has. So like, I could go see this. I know you're all shocked I haven't. It's because (laughs) I discovered the Duke Library had it after the pandemic began. But like, you know, like, Someone you will, go, you will go see it eventually. You are yeah. <laughs> clearly it is there for you. That is why yeah, they are saving right. it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They knew I was coming. But like someone who like is not a scholar, who lives in my hometown, for instance, like isn't like like they don't have access yeah. to this game. Yeah. Like I if I wanted to buy my own copy, which I looked around on Google just to see, like <laughs> like I, I found a listing for it, like in a periodical PDF from when it was first published, but like I couldn't find a copy on like eBay, you know, even out of, out of print board games that were published in the last like 30 years in my lifetime. Like it's not easy to get copies of those things. Mm -hmm. Like they're technically available in the same way. Like the people who go see Broadway shows, their income level on average is super high. Like I read an article Mm -hmm. about recently, but forgot the number. So like, Broadway shows, everyone technically has an opportunity to buy the tickets. But like... If you win the lottery, yes. If you yeah, win the lottery yeah. and, and have the money to even enter the lottery, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, exactly. So like, like who has access to these things? Like, mm-hmm. well, And concert you know. tickets days are getting into that yes. same category. And, I mean, I'm and, Taylor with the Ticketmaster problem, but yeah, even, yeah, even, yeah, even but, without that, yeah. yeah well, yeah, I mean, you had the Ticketmaster problem to any tickets and you yeah, $40 ticket to $90 tickets. That's a whole other mm-hmm. rant. I mean, with that sort of thing, that access is a big part of it. You know, with music, once again, there are thousands upon thousands of record albums that came out in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s by bands you've never heard of in genres that are popular. I'm sure there are polka albums that came out in 1954 that have never been repressed. You can mm-hmm. find that the Goodwill in Lawrenceville, that stuff has never been digitized. Somebody may, you know, once again, on somebody's Dropbox somewhere, some obsessive polka fan has done this. But in terms of access, there's just like literally 
thousands of pieces of recorded music out there that you can't just listen to on Spotify. And, and yeah. I guess like also thinking about access, I realized like as we're talking about live events, like a lot of people can't go see live events right now because of mm-hmm. COVID. And so you know, people are kind of being pushed out of spaces as safety measures get rolled back further. And this is not the direction I thought I would be thinking about as we did this. I thought I'd be more like, I thought I would get to talk about Lipsha. I've worked it in now. That's Kesha and Flaming Licks, Lips sort of like lost collaboration that kind of got put on pause because of Kesha's legal battle with Dr. Luke. And last I heard a few years ago, Kesha said she had no idea where the tracks that were unreleased were. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes. And they said in you know the in our text message back and forth when we were talking about this some stuff, you know the records is part of it. There are master tapes that are long gone from for various reasons. So while the vinyl, the example I gave this is anecdotal. I believe this is the way it went. But the Iggy and the Stooges album Raw Power, notoriously everybody thought the original album sounded a little tinny. It didn't have any bottom to it. And Iggy remixed it in the early '90s and destroyed the original master tapes. Anecdotally, I don't know how accurate that is, but that's the story I have heard. So the only way to and the CD that that I own is the remastered version. Now Mm -hmm. the vinyl is still out there; you can get it. The digital versions that are available, unless they've been recorded from the vinyl, it's a different album. There's a very there's a very common version of that. I think so. Like, I mean, not that Iggy Pop is particularly a you know little known artist. Iggy Pop, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's a big, but I can give you something that's like really that most people don't even think about, but it is very common. Good luck trying to watch the original, as seen in theaters, version of Star Wars Episode yeah. Four: A New yeah. Hope. It's it's really hard. I have a copy of it because I'm a weird nerd who will mm-hmm. who's gone through the trouble of. But I mean, it's not trivial. Like so, literally, because the three of you know me, I could provide you. You know, I could have a screening at my home, and I could invite you guys to watch. You know, the original Star Wars as seen in theaters because it was available on videotape in like 1980. And like, so right. I was able so like I was able to track down a but like it's not on Disney Plus. You can't get like mm-hmm. you like you you have special editions now or you have people who have recreated it with the, you know, the despecialized editions, which I think is there. I think there's a value to things like the despecialized editions of Star Wars, which are these people who have gone about recreating <laughs> the engineering. Yes, they have pieced together original cuts of the movie as of the original three Star Wars movies as seen in theaters from the remastered bits of the specialized editions and where they had to older versions of like the videotape version that I have in order to like recreate this in as close as possible for digital form. And I've got access to that as well. But this is that archival thing that people are doing for Star Wars because it's Star Wars, but they're not doing for last summer, which is a movie that I, that like no one's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Or what's the one that we, you know, I always talk about Wayne. Little Darlings, Darlings, which is a movie that Wayne and I love. And the two of you haven't seen. And good luck finding it. I mean, yeah. again, I, you can come visit me and I'll show you. But it's one of those weird things because it's mm-hmm. like, it's not on DVD anywhere. It sure as hell isn't streaming anywhere, you know. Well, and just recently, we assume, you know, we can watch anything streaming on TV. But there, you know, how many TV shows are not available streaming? I, Mark, Matthew and I have talked about this just in the history of television. You know, one of my all-time favorite 
TV series is Northern Exposure. And it had, it's not streaming any place. When the DVDs were released, the series had a ton of music in it. They couldn't get the rights to yeah, over 50 for music. So the DVDs replaced music cues with bottled Muzak, you know, mm-hmm. and it changed the show. It sounds weird. Yeah. It really changed the show. They recently released a new box set. They got all the rights. So it's back. You can buy the box set. Oh, of it. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, which I just discovered at Christmas. Someone got it for me and I've been rewatching it. But yeah, well, for the first time in a decade, as the way the it was intended to be like 1992, I'm, I'm hearing right. the right music for it. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, you guys can't stream that any place. You have to go out and buy the $50 box set if you have any interest at all. So it's available, but differently than the way we typically consume. Well, it's it's, it's, it's available compared to, to a lot of stuff. That's just that's nice. part it's, of the reason. Yeah, sorry, Wayne. No, no, I was going to say, it's my favorite Martian available on DVD you know, for streaming. Yeah, this is one reason why not just Batgirl, but HBO Max got raked over the coals during this merger that's still working itself out, I guess. Still merging. Because, like, a lot of, I mean, a lot of shows, to be fair, I had not heard of them, but apparently some of them were very good. Like, especially animated shows on HBO Max got yanked off the service. they just yanked them, yeah. Yeah, streaming (laughs) service did not find them a new place. Like, Westworld got yanked, but they were like, well, it's going to find a new home because it's Westworld. I swear to God, I've watched the season or series finale of that like three times now. It's because well, it keeps getting interrupted by pandemic and things. Um, I swear <laughs> I've watched the final episode at least <laughs> in two different seasons. Wow. And, then, and now I'm told there's more. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. So, like, I, I mean, you know, I, I guess like Warner Brothers is making financial decisions apparently mm-hmm. when they're yanking these things off streaming services or like i'm going to just over dramatically say burning the negatives of Batgirl. that's not exactly <laughs> what they're doing no, in the vault. they have yeah. it they just aren't showing it yeah like like there there is like a like there's a money component to that like it's not like the negatives of something that aired on tv in the 60s got lost somehow you know like or there was an accident like books like don't get reprinted sometimes yeah. board games don't get reprinted sometimes like you know like a kickstarter makes mm-hmm. it like gold fulfills yeah. it and then like that might That's be it. the last time you ever hear of that game and it disappears even and- really successful popular books and i was talking with marcel about this recently just in, in prep for the show just trying to think of things like that when i was Early teen, one of the first novels I read you know, outside that was popular, they made a movie out of it. This is like a selling book of 1974. It's called The Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Mm-hmm. Anybody? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> selling novel, movie made out of it. Nobody remembers it. Probably hasn't been. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I haven't looked. Maybe it's on Amazon. Maybe the new now. I doubt it. Well, my version of that is, and this is this was relevant to me. As a scholar, I, for my dissertation, I read a lot of comics. Now, I'll, I will give you an example. For instance, Action Comics number one, first appearance of Superman. There are 100 copies known in existence today of the physical media. Detective Comics number 27, first appearance of Batman. There are 40 copies known in existence today. Of the we, know nobody who own, we know somebody who owns one. Right, right. But I mean, literally, it's a yeah. the the club there. Is, you don't have access to those, and except that you do, because the first appearance of Superman has been pr- reprinted a bajillion times. The first right. appearance of Batman has been reprinted a bajillion times. You know what hasn't been reprinted a bajillion times? 
the first appearance of Zatara, who yeah. is also in Action Comics number one because they don't re- really like DC only reprints the part that everyone cares about and not all the other media that's in there that is important if you are, say, doing a history of comics, which I did. So what you do is you, like, people like me, here's the dirty little secret. We rely on bootlegs. We rely on, uh, like, your choices are you can get special access to go to the library at Bowling Green College, which has all of this, because it's literally, and I mean, there are a few libraries that have the entire archives of all the old stuff that you need, but you have to, like, plan ahead for months in advance i've been there it's really lovely but like i can't just kind of go there and write a dissertation there by going there Mm -hmm. every day or i rely on trying to get bootlegs online because it's the only way i can get that stuff i think that treasury edition version of action from the 70s had everything did it have the ads well and it probably had number one but how do you find number two or number three right, or number right, four? Yeah, yeah, which exactly. All of which yeah. I've read the I've read the first right. three years of that comic. So like yeah, I've read yeah, like exactly. one yeah, thirty six. You, yeah. you can find the first one, you can't find the rest of them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then and that's Superman. You know, the number of comics that were being produced in the nineteen forties and fifties that have never been reprinted. Sally you know, the Sleuth. Yeah, there are copies of them <laughs> sitting in somebody's collection someplace. But and I will say, you know, I'm stunned at the amount of stuff they have found copies of and reprinted. You know, there are companies out there reprinting really obscure comics from 60 years ago, which you know, amazes me. The audience is incredibly small when mm-hmm. stuff is coming out, but it's compared to what's available, it's kind of nothing. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. compared to what was actually published. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, to bring it back to the sort of where I started with this is if, like, part of what remains tied to capital like what does that mean like sometimes things are actually removed for capital including like stuff like fan fiction like people will originally write something as fan fiction like she has a gray how i figure out a better example and then you know like a different example because this is more like it's more than Fifty shades of gray but you know Fifty shades of gray was master of the universe and now like that master of the universe still exists i believe is pdf copies that people like pass around on bootleg well, you can't just go to fanfic.net and download it. Or at least mm-hmm. I believe that's true based on my very strange Google before we recorded this episode. So I could make sure I was <laughs> right about that. I search history is going to be weird tomorrow. But, you know, there is money underpinning a lot of these decisions, which I think is different oh, yeah. from what we were talking about at the beginning of the hour when we started talking about, you know, polit- sort of like political arguments about how we read a text or why we archive it and how that matters to the narratives that shape how history was recorded. So do these two things like overlap? I feel like they do, for example, because like Monica was talking about like, you know, there's not enough physical space and you got to pay people. Mm-hmm. But you also like, have to these pay things. for cloud space and you have to pay for yeah. storage mm-hmm. space. And yes. if we think about like a lot of born digital material every time you try and update it for a new computer system you have the potential of it getting corrupted it's actually much safer to then keep a bunch of like old computers in a closet somewhere in your building be mm-hmm. able to read that floppy disk on its original floppy disk form rather than trying to turn it into something that lives on a hard drive or a flash drive or a you know a more mm-hmm. efficient storage space and that's a money decision right like 
to be able to have those old computers, to be able to, some books are more expensive than others. Some video games are more expensive mm-hmm. than others. Like the reason that we can have ephemera collections is, you know, somebody saved that because they felt value of uh, ephemera is something that's, you know, usually supposed to be thrown away, which a lot of people would argue was the original use purpose for a comic book. That's why it was printed on paper. Mm-hmm. Is because yeah. it was meant mm-hmm. to be disposable, and then we revalue these objects as then being worth so much more money than what was essentially something that was deemed worthless to start with, right? And so mm-hmm. all of that ends up becoming a money decision of can you actually afford to acquire the thing that everyone has decided is worth money? And then we are kind of coming back to our ideas of capital and of taste and of value as being incredibly socially constructed when we decide what does or does not have value. So there is a sense Mm -hmm. in which we are talking politics, but we are also talking cost in Mm -hmm. both of those decisions of things that like, I really like to own, you know, the first comic book appearance of my favorite character. Like, yeah, but can I afford it? Maybe not, because someone has decided mm-hmm. that that's worth a lot more money than it was ever intended to be worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much to Josh's displeasure, I am trying to build a small archive of certain types of 19th century themed games because I'm a nerd and I own like 50, although not all of them are 19th century. And I've like run like I've run out of space and like also they cost money and I don't have infinite <laughs> amount of money. So like there's some games that like have fit into like my parameters that I've just been like, nope. I already have a version of this past. And that's like new stuff too. Like this is not me hunting down like 18th, 19th century like original board games. Mm. Also like David Mitchell actually is really obsessed with lost and disappearing media in his work like Utopia Avenue Wayne. Like that's a whole book about a lost band. But Cloud Atlas deals with a composer whose work is more or less lost to the ages. Like he gets a hundred, I think copies of a record printed and the movie did a similar thing where they printed a vinyl of like the cloud atlas sextet and they just like put it out there and so now this thing like occasionally pops up on ebay for like eight hundred dollars for like a vinyl that you can buy which, i mean that's just like a weird example of like purposeful lost media which i don't even know what to do with that it's like you know it was like a gimmick for the movie so We've reached the point in the evening where Hannah gets tired and talks about <laughs> So we resolved nothing. like, has Hannah basically. resolved nothing? Yeah. Oh, th- there was one thing I did want to talk about a little, maybe to set us up for a different episode before we went, which is rest. We've kind of talked about this a little bit, like restoration. Like there, there is like media that's quote unquote lost. And then there are scholars who go into like archives and I'm not going to say discover it. Because it's not being discovered, but they, you know, they cast more attention on it. You know, there, there's like fiction that tries to bring attention to marginalized artists like Mozart in the Jungle, like notably featured a lot of historical female composers who like I discovered that these women were historical composers because of Mozart in the Jungle. And so like there is like acts of recovery that you know go on in in both fiction and in scholarly work and that's like also true in weird ways of how like studios sometimes discover like lost media or make older versions available like disney plus gave us the cut of the muppet christmas carol this year 
where the song mm-hmm. Love is Gone, which was taken out, was re-added and like it ties the movie's themes together much better. So like having the lost media in front of you does make a difference about how you might read a text. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also the version of that matters to me is Metropolis, the classic film Metropolis, which I taught it two weeks ago in my pop culture class. It's the most recent release of it, which has re-added footage that I believe was discovered in the 2010s at some point they someone found like an old pressing of it and so they've edited it back into the film so the version that i've seen most times that i studied when i was in college is just different than the version that i'm using today and so it's fascinating to you know the movie changes because we as we continuously try to recreate the version that existed in 1927 which you know is which will we ever get there who knows right film was we talked about like the way film is different than a live performance but film in the 1920s did not run at a constant speed and the music was not part of the original track so even that had an ephemeral nature to the performance of you know the presentation of the film so like i think things like that are interesting i don't know if it's the same the restoration part might take us in a different direction than just the lost entirely because because it's not actually no I'm gonna I'm gonna that I'd love to speak to just as well oh yeah because you yeah because when you're restoring a garment exactly because part of my degree is in conservation as well it's in the idea that I mean decay is just a thing that happens to things like and I feel like that's something that we have not I know that sounds so big that's something we haven't really addressed this episode is that the material culture is just that things get old, right? Things break down. Mm -hmm. That is part of their life cycle as objects. And as much as we like to talk about, like, we want to save everything, we want to preserve everything, we want, like, all of this media to not disappear, we also just need to talk about, like, that is inherently what it does. Like, that is inherently what it Mm -hmm. should do. That is the natural life cycle. And for us to think that there is anything else is kind of a myth that we've been perpetuating just because the aging happens a bit slower than we can actually mm-hmm. see it by the naked eye, right? But when we go to we are a, missing most of the wonders of the world. Yeah, when we go so to a the, museum, the, yeah, all of those things are like pretend that temperature control and lights and not being allowed to have flash photography or whatever <laughs> is actually keeping these objects from breaking down, but they are breaking down in front of you. And every single thing that you see in a museum, we will eventually get to a point where mm-hmm. it is dust, mm-hmm. right? And we, it just so happens that because we live in this era, like this technological era in which we make things so much faster, that we're so much more concerned with the, like, the ephemeral nature of needing to catch our little lightnings in a bottle as quick as we can. With mm-hmm. things like film that, you know, if it's made on silver nitrate, like, could just explode and disintegrate at any given point in time, right? <laughs> or if we think yeah. about textiles, I took an entire conservation course in my master's program that was on the inherent vices of some materials, meaning that the way that they are chemically constructed is just mm-hmm. unstable and will break down. Like, that is, mm-hmm. and it will break down faster than it was supposed to, right? 
But even when we think about something like silk, silk is incredibly delicate. You can't get it wet. That's why you have to take it to the dry cleaner. If you take it to the dry cleaner too many times, you're going to notice that fabric feels a little crappier than it did when you bought it because all those chemicals are doing something to all that silk. Like When we talk about reconstruction, we also need to address the idea that reconstruction is part of the natural process if we really care about continuing to have some version of that thing within the archive. So if it's silk that is starting to shatter and you want to be able to put that dress on display in a museum exhibit, you are going to need to do some conservation work. You're going to need to put together some version of invisible patches or mending so that it's structurally sound enough that you're not doing damage to the object by putting it on display. And by putting it on display is, again, comes to our questions of access in terms of who actually gets to see these. Is it just the curators and what good is that doing versus putting it on display, at least for everyone who comes to the museum, to be able to experience that object. And so we are dealing sort of constantly with this idea of, is it ethical to reproduce? Is it ethical to repair? Is it ethical to conserve? And it does come to a question of how much are you doing when it comes to the original integrity of object. But there's also a sense in which all of that is a myth too, because when we encounter <laughs> objects within museums, we're not encountering them within their original use purpose. And what I mean is when you look at a garment that's on a mannequin, that wasn't, it didn't start out on a mannequin, that started out on a body and it started out custom made for that body. So even if you were like, Oh, well, what did that object look like when it moved on a body? You can't just go have anyone try it on. You can't even just go have anyone who says that they're the same size four as that dress is. Because everyone's movements are different. Kim Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> the way that everyone's sweat is different. The way that you approach, are you clumsier in an object? Are you more likely to step on the hem than the person who originally owned it? All of those things are changing the actual use purpose and experience of that original object. So there is a sense in which everything that we are encountering that is not being used by the original person who owned it is already kind mm. of an idea of a reproduction. I'm thinking about Downton Abbey. Yes. Mark, have you have you heard this about Downton Abbey using costumes from the era yes. and like the cast That's members so, were talking about how smelly they were? That's a very common debate <laughs> of should we actually use like vintage clothes within costuming? Is that ethical when it comes to the accuracy of reproductions of period clothes but it's just one in which we're really just kind of like policing it's another way to police the archive right it's another way to decide who gets to mm -hmm. touch who gets to access what is actually valued as being worthy of a museum versus worthy of just being vintage clothes that's worn by that are worn by actors like it, it just is putting mm -hmm. everything back into this like hierarchical institution that we can't quite escape in that I'm like yeah sure color a photo maybe I'm gonna see something new like maybe that is your mm -hmm. artist interpretation and it actually is coming I think our problem is just that our perceptions of what is accurate or not accurate are incredibly gatekeeping notion and I know that this was a very long rant but it's something that I care tremendously about and happen to spend a lot of my dissertation work on is this idea of sort of the myth of 
accuracy when it comes to history and historiography and our ideas of material culture as inherently being more accurate because it's something that we can touch rather than something that we no longer have access to anymore. Probably accuracy. And I mean, like you talked about, what if you're more clumsy than the person? What if you're less clumsy than the person? You're already performatively changing the intention and the use case of the garment, right? Yes. Like, so, so if you're more careful with it, Marilyn, yeah, and you didn't right, shove right. it in did, a corner you, because it, you know, I've been to museums where right. it's like to take the, the Kardashian thing, yeah, though. Exactly. Yeah, the Kim Kardashian thing versus Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe was not thinking of that dress as. The, the a thing that's going to be in a museum or on a celebrity wearing it to the Met one day, Marilyn Monroe was thinking of that dress as the clothes that I'm wearing today. You know, it was a sexy dress because she was going to a sexy thing, right? Like, but it's not, it isn't the same. It is not the same as respectfully or unrespectfully what Kardashian was doing when she wore it in, you know, however many years later. So I do think we talked about with comic books and you, know, you said, you know, so how important were they? In the early days, the reason we have a hundred copies of Action Comics number one left is because they were printed on paper that was so cheap because the presumption was after you read it and your brother read it and your friend down the street read it, now you're done with it and you're going to use it to wrap fish in or you're going mm -hmm. to use it as literal toilet paper. Like that's what people were doing with, you know, pulp magazines and comics a hundred years ago or, you know, 80 something years ago. So. Well, yeah, so like, I mean, because yeah. we've yeah. decided what counts as popular culture and we've art. decided what counts as literature yes. and we've decided what counts as art and we decided somewhere along the way that comic books were going to fit on that hierarchy at the bottom of being printed on something that wasn't very good for preservation and by the way speaking of archives and deterioration like you know i wrote for newspapers when i was in college and that was like well more than 10 years ago now and it's hard to imagine how time goes by and like i looked at those newspapers that like like from my freshman year and they did not age well it's, <laughs> and it's not like it's been it's the cheapest paper you can find yeah it's yeah different. like they're meant to break down yeah yeah and so like and you know i recorded a podcast when i was in college and you cannot find it now like it's just like gone I wrote for weekly newspaper here in town in pittsburgh articles right when the internet was starting they had a website toward the end of my run there which mm -hmm. is gone for 20 some years good luck finding any of my articles or anybody else's from in pittsburgh mm -hmm. i've lived on the internet for 30 years you can find everything about mine <laughs> if you look hard enough that's actually not true it's really hard to find copies of the 365 days podcast my first podcast like they're out there i've got them but it is it is difficult yeah you know and so. actually this podcast has a lost episode or part of a lost episode at least that was never published that was because i screwed up yes. no i mean i mean like we yes. yeah we had to re-record yes. because and actually we had to re-record half an episode once and we just didn't have a show that week because like our computers like crashed halfway through and like yeah oh yeah there, yeah the one episode where both hannah and i lost our computers the yes. same week and it's just like oh okay <laughs> this is not gonna happen <laughs> so so like we we have some like stuff that like just does not exist because life happens so mm -hmm. things happen yeah actually Monica, <laughs> that's a really good point that like things degrade because i'm sure that it will degrade over time anyway but like 
I have sleeved some of the cards in my more rare and hard to find board games because when you touch cards while you're playing, you wear them down over time. So like, <laughs> I, I mean, there's always that the tale as old as time of like, oh, are you really supposed to wear white gloves? And it's like, well, sometimes you're not because sometimes the abrasion of fabric against something else is worse than the oils of our grumpy little fingers against something else. Like, it's all just supposed mm. to fucking die. That's and I hate to be like that's the end of our episode, <laughs> but like, you know, yeah. Join us next week on Vox Podcast for wonder for more uplifting com- content. Oh, I like I don't know how to fit this in, but in grad school we read things about literary Darwinism, and I feel like that's something, but also probably not. So <laughs> until next time, goodbye. Okay. <laughs> Someone be more uplifting than Monica. I, no, I want to leave it there, and I want Mav to say, "Where can I find you?" And then us to all say, "Nowhere. We're gonna die." Oh God, I, I hate you all. How are you, my friends? Jesus, Monica, where can people find you? Mav, they can't find me anywhere because everything is fleeting, and the internet is it. Is Twitter even going to exist by the time this episode comes out? I, I was going to make that yeah. joke, so thank you for okay. doing that. Yeah, you can't, you can't find me. Anna, where can people find you? Maybe here, but also maybe the apocalypse will take us before this comes out. So who knows? <sighs> Wayne, I'm going to live forever, and uh, you can listen <laughs> to my podcast in you know, three thousand years from now. <laughs> Still be doing the show. I don't even want to do my outro. Fine. <laughs> As always, you can follow me on Twitter if it exists, or Instagram if it exists, or Facebook if it exists. All of the places. Always or maybe at Christmas. You Have you joined Spendable yet? Sorry, got too excited. <laughs> you can follow the show all those same places. <laughs> Box podcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week or last week. Again, not sure of the episode order, but you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You can suggest topics. You can say anything else that's on your mind. Sometimes we pick guests from the blogs. If you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you leave us a five-star review, not just a rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And I need that now after my lovely co-hosts all try to make me depressed. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, Building Ever So More Epically and Playing Us Out. I'd once again like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Well, maybe not next time, actually. <laughs> <laughs>